And God, as we now come to your word, we thank you for your word. And we remember that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us by Him. So we thank you for it, and we pray that it would accomplish your purposes in our lives as we study it. We pray for our children and ask, O Lord, for the glory of Christ, that you would save them. We pray that the gospel seeds that fall upon their ears and their hearts today would take root and bear a rich harvest in your time and by your work. And we pray, O Lord, that you would use this time as we study your word to conform us more to the image of Christ. Help us, O Lord, see not only what this means, what your text means today, but help us apply it to our lives for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, today is uh, a first Sunday of the month, which means we're in the Psalms. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 33. We'll be looking at Psalm 33 today. Um, This has been one one of my favorite studies, the study of the Psalms. Uh, particularly the one last month, uh, Psalm 32, was, was so good. I pray that it was a, as much a blessing for you as, as it was for me. Uh, but what we're going to see is that Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 may actually have a connection. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But we'll be looking at Psalm 33 today, verses 1 to 22. Uh, the Belgic Confession... Uh, For those of you who love reading the historic Protestant confessions, uh, the Belgic Confession is one of the greats, one of the great ones, one of the great Protestant confessions that was born out of the heritage of the Reformation. It was written in 1561 as a series of liturgical articles that give succinct explanations of what the Dutch Reformed Church affirms. Uh, Article 1 is titled, The Only God, and it says this. It says, We believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just and good, and the overflowing source of all good. That's a wonderfully succinct definition of who God is, in my opinion. Uh, Very very good for people to memorize, and it was written to be memorized. Uh, The second article is titled, The Means by Which We Know God. And actually, this article continues right where Article 1 left off. The Means by Which We Know God. Article 2 says this. It says, We know God by two means. First, by creation preservation and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without excuse. As a side note, that's what we would refer to as natural revelation. It continues, these are, uh, let's see, second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation, end quote. And as a side note, that would be what we would refer to as special revelation. So there's natural revelation and there is special revelation. And these are just really nice, succinct uh, summaries of what every Christian, whether you're Dutch Reformed or, or not, this is what every Christian should be able to affirm. This is what every Christian should believe and understand about God and who He is and, who, and how He's known. But the one thing that you might say tests our understanding of who God is, is our willingness, indeed perhaps our eagerness, to worship Him. So today we continue our study of the Psalms, and this is a psalm about worshiping God, encouraging us to worship God. 
in Psalm 33. It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm that calls us to worship God both for who He is and for what He has done. And that's actually the point of this psalm. That God is worthy of our undivided worship because of who He is and what He has done. Now what's interesting as we start this psalm is you'll note when you look at it that there's not a title on it, which is very different from most of the other psalms that we've gone over so far. In fact, it's one of only four psalms in the first book of psalms. The first book of psalms is Psalm 1 to 41 uh, that doesn't uh, have some type of title or superscription. It doesn't tell us what it's about. It doesn't tell us who wrote it. Uh, No instructions are left for the choir director or anything like that. And that's led many people to believe that Psalm 33 is actually a continuation of Psalm 32, which we again covered last month. Psalm 32 is just beautiful. Psalm 32 is a beautiful psalm about the joy of being cleansed through the confession of sin before God, being washed clean of our guilt and our shame before God, and having our fellowship with Him maintained and renewed. Psalm 32 was David's praise offered unto God for the forgiveness of sins, and it was closely related to Psalm 51. Um, It ended with the command to rejoice. And that's how Psalm 33 begins. So is it possible that they were originally written as two parts of the same song? I'd say it's, it's definitely possible. After all, if we are going to worship God, and that's what Psalm 33 is about, isn't it good to come into His presence having already been cleansed through the confession of sin? Absolutely. So, so maybe they, they go together. Maybe Psalms 32 and 33 go together. Listen to how Psalm 32 ends. It says, Be glad in the, in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And now look down at Psalm 33 and listen to how it begins. It says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Do you see the repetition of all these words from the end of Psalm 32 and the first verse of Psalm 33? It definitely sounds like there might be some connection between these two psalms. In Psalm 32, we see that God is worthy to be praised because He's gracious and forgiving of our sins when we confess our sins before Him. In Psalm 33, then, God is worthy to be praised because of who He is. But specifically, at the front, at the forefront of the psalmist's mind as he writes this, God is worthy to be praised because He is sovereign. Because He is sovereign over all things. Over all things, all events. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean that God is in control. And not just in control of a a few things, not even in control of most things. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that He is sovereign, that He is in control over all things. As R.C. Sproul said, there are no maverick molecules in God's universe. Why? Because He's sovereign over all of them. He's sovereign over all things. He maintains absolute control over the entire universe down to the smallest level. And that includes the earth, by the way, and the affairs of humanity. He is sovereign over it all. That is what the psalmist has in mind as he writes this psalm, giving us reasons to worship God. The Puritan pastor and theologian, Thomas Brooks once wrote that, quote, the sovereignty of God is that golden scepter in his hand by which he will make all bow, either by his word or by his works, by his mercies or by his judgments, end quote. So because God is sovereign over all things, because God is in control of all things, he is worthy of our worship. Therefore, the psalmist begins this psalm with a call, an invitation to to worship God. Sing for joy in the Lord, he instructs us. Now, some translations say rejoice in the Lord. And I would say, yeah, that that works. Uh, Sounds a little bit like Paul when he was writing to the Philippians. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord or sing for joy in the Lord. 
Same thing. Uh, The word given there in Hebrew literally means to be overcome, to cry out, to shout for joy, to give a, a ringing cry. The psalmist then quickly moves to remind us that it's becoming for the upright to praise God. It's becoming. That that word can also be translated beautiful. And our worship should be beautiful, shouldn't it? It should be loud. It should be beautiful. It should be full of rejoicing and thanksgiving. That's the kind of worship that God is worthy of receiving. A couple weeks ago, Maddie had to leave the service after the sermon to put uh, her, her, her son, my grandson, uh, down for a nap back at the house, and she could very clearly hear our little church singing the final hymn, I Stand Amazed, even while she was back at the house. It is so beautiful to hear the people of God loudly singing praises, loudly proclaiming the glory of God. And He's worthy of that kind of worship. The introduction here, which is a call to worship, continues in the next two verses as the psalmist instructs us in how God is to be praised and worshipped. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. He continues saying, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Praise, sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So first what he says here is that God is to be worshipped with joyful singing. That's what he said in verse 1. Joyful singing and praise. And here the psalmist continues by instructing us to worship God essentially with thankful hearts. We do have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? As long as I've been a Christian, I've understood that to be true. I've understood that we always have everything to be thankful for. And yet over the course of the past... 16 months during COVID, I've realized how many of those blessings I actually took for granted. I was thankful, but not as thankful as I think I should have been. So I'm thankful to have gained a new perspective on things that maybe I wasn't as thankful for as I should have been. But the Lord has also been very, very good to us as a church congregation over the last year and a half. The reality is that if you understand who God is, and if you understand what God has done, we have every reason in the world to be thankful, to give thanks to the Lord, as the psalmist says. We have every reason in the world to do that. As I recently noted in a sermon in our John series, we can even thank God for painful trials. When we go through trials and fires, and valleys, we can thank God. Number one, because He's with us. But number two, because He's actually using that trial for our ultimate good. We might not understand what that ultimate good is in the present moment, but the day will come, as I noted in that sermon, the day will come when we'll be able to look back and say, I am so glad that God brought me through that valley. I am so glad that God put me through that fire because it has a refining effect in our lives. So, if you're a Christian, what do you have to be thankful for? I mean, you've got a huge list. Let's just start at the top. You, you can be thankful for the forgiveness of sins if you believed in, in Jesus. You can be thankful for grace, for mercy, for redemption, for adoption as sons and daughters of the King. But the list doesn't stop there. It, it keeps going. It doesn't just include our justification, being freed from the penalty of sin. We can be thankful for much more than just that, although we should be very thankful for that, of course. No, it continues to everything, everything that takes place during our sanctification. That is, everything that God has done in us and for us since initially receiving forgiveness of sins. So how do we give thanks to Him? What's an appropriate way to give thanks to Him? The psalmist says, with the lyre and the harp of ten strings. Now this is an instruction to use our musical skills, our musical instruments to accompany our songs of worship and and praise and thanksgiving. God designed us to be moved by music. 
we learn uh, very well by song. In fact, every language in the world has an alphabet song. Why? Because that's the easiest way to teach a child the alphabet, and it's important to know the alphabet. So we, we learn, God has designed us to learn through singing songs. Music has a way of just kind of echoing in our minds, even after the instruments have stopped playing, even after we leave today. Music has a way of just sticking with us and echoing through our minds. And musical instruments are an acceptable means of leading us in worship. The psalmist is reinforcing that idea. But we aren't limited to just these two instruments that he names here in this psalm. Stephen Lawson notes in his commentary on this psalm, quote, these two instruments are representative of an entire orchestra that would be used in the accompaniment of praise, end quote. And if you want to see psalms that list more instruments, try Psalm 150, where you see several instruments listed. So these two are just representative of the whole arrangement of musical instruments. And finally, here in verse 3, the psalmist tells us to sing a new song and to play skillfully. What is a new song? What does that refer to? What's that talking about? Is that talking about the latest number one hit on Christian radio? Or what exactly does that refer to? Well, it's actually a term. New song is actually a term that we see mentioned in a few places throughout Scripture. But one of those places that gives us an idea of what a new song means is actually in the book of Revelation. In chapter 14, uh, it begins with a new song being sung. Uh, John writes in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14 of Revelation. He says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now if you ask me, that's... That's a pretty interesting detail that's kind of added in there at the end of that verse. Only God's people, that's what His name being written on their foreheads signifies, by the way, His absolute ownership of them. Only God's people are able to learn this song. Charles Spurgeon notes of this detail. He says, quote, Heaven is not the place to learn that song. It must be learned on the earth. You must learn here the notes of free grace and dying love. And when you have mastered their melody, you'll be able to offer to the Lord the tribute of a grateful heart, even in heaven, and blend it with the harmonies eternal. End quote. So, a new song is another way of saying it's a song of of love and grace and redemption that's been experienced It's been offered unto God. This new song is being offered unto God as opposed to a song that would have been sung prior to a person receiving and experiencing God's redeeming love. The old song would have been a song learned in Egypt, so to speak. While you're still in bondage to sin. But a new song represents a song that's sung with a heart that is a joyful recipient of God's redeeming mercy and grace. It's a song that never, ever gets old because God's grace and the redemption that we have through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, never gets old. It is a new song every day, just like God's mercies are new every morning. The psalmist now moves to tell us the reasons for worshiping and rejoicing. And most of the psalm consists of this section that we're coming to now. So the first reason that the Holy Spirit is going to give us through the pen of the psalmist, the first reason to worship God is because His Word is upright. Because His Word is upright. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. He says, For, because, for the Word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Now when the, Lord, when the Word of God tells us 
that the word of the Lord is upright. It means it is correct. It means it's right. It means that it's, it's straight. He means to tell us that it is the only infallible, inerrant, unswerving, unyielding standard of moral righteousness, of good and evil. The Word of God alone is the moral compass that leads us in the way that we should go. And it's a light that exposes things for what they truly are in this dark, dark world. Now, you'll remember that the Belgic Confession said that there are only two ways that we can know God. There are some things that we can know about God purely by natural revelation. Romans 1.20, as uh, the Belgic Confession refers to, tells us that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen in nature, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Who is they who are without excuse? It's everybody. It's everybody. It refers back to those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which is what everybody by nature does. That's, that's one of the consequences of total depravity, is that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We don't want to acknowledge the truth. We don't want to live by the truth. And to avoid living by the truth, we have to suppress it. And that's what man, humanity, does by nature. By virtue of the fact that sin has corrupted our very being down to the smallest particle of the human body. But the reality is that we cannot ascertain most of the truth about God from nature. There are so many things about God that we cannot learn from nature. And that brings us to the second way that we can know about God, and that is from His Word. You'll remember that the the Belgic Confession said, God makes Himself known to us more clearly by His holy and divine Word. So, for example, nature does not reveal that there is only one God. Nature does not reveal that God is triune. Nature doesn't reveal that God has wrath against sin. And it doesn't reveal how to appease God's wrath against sin. Nature doesn't reveal that it's impossible to please God apart from faith. Nature doesn't reveal that God has provided a once and for all sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for sin, by sending His own Son. Nature doesn't reveal that God has made a way for us to be able to dwell forever in the presence of His glory. How do we know any of these things? Not from nature. We know these things by God's Word. These things are clearly revealed in God's Word. So, praise God that He has given us this knowledge. Praise God that He's given us His holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired, all-sufficient Word so that we may know these things and apply them. The psalmist tells us that God's Word reveals that God's work is done in faithfulness. That He loves righteousness. That He loves justice. And that the earth is full of His loving kindness. Nature doesn't reveal these things. Nature doesn't reveal these things, but God's Word does. The prophet Isaiah writes, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. That's Isaiah 40, verse 8. God goes on to tell Isaiah of Scripture's efficiency. He says to Isaiah uh, further on, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it barren sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will My Word be which goes forth from My mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's Word is efficient for what God wants to accomplish. It's powerful. It's efficient. It accomplishes everything that God intends for it to accomplish, including the conviction and the conversion of sinners. I mean, after all, faith is a gift from God. And faith comes by hearing. Right. By hearing the Word of Christ preached. Again, this has everything to do with God's sovereignty over creation. Specifically, this has everything to do with God's sovereignty in salvation. 
The person who understands the, the power and the efficiency and the purpose of God's Word will treasure God's Word. The person who understands these things will study God's Word. The person who understands these things will memorize God's Word. They will hide it deep in their hearts. And the person who understands these things, above all, will live by God's Word. They'll be able to say with the psalmist, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's from Psalm 119, verse 105. God's Word is powerful. Look at verses 6-9 to with me. The psalmist continues in verses 6 to 9, writing, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe in him, in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So powerful is God's Word. He used it to literally create everything that exists out of nothing. The word that we use commonly to refer to that is uh, creation ex nihilo. Creation from nothing. God simply spoke and what did not exist came to exist. That's how powerful God's Word is. God's Word is so powerful, it does what no other word can do. It does what nothing else can do. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Is there anything else in the world that we have at our disposal that can do these things? No. What we have is the Word of God. The Word of God accomplishes these things. It does what no technology could ever, ever do. So powerful is God's Word that it will stand steady and it will stand strong even when the whole world stands against it. Everywhere we look in our world, in our culture, we see the results of a society that has rejected God's Word that has rejected God's Word. We've become a culture, therefore, with no moral compass, no moral anchor as a result of the rejection of God's Word. And the ultimate consequence of man's sinful, foolish decision to abandon the Word of God is rampant immorality. Everywhere we look. It's on TV. It's in music. It is absolutely everywhere. And it's not only visible everywhere, but it's got a whole month in which we celebrate it. In which we celebrate wickedness. In which we celebrate what God's Word specifically deems evil. God's people, however, do not shift their morality with the culture. Because God's Word is the standard that stands the test of time. God's Word is a standard against which we measure every truth claim, every uh, moral claim. Jesus prayed of all who would believe in Him, saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. His Word has the power to do something else that nothing else does. And that is sanctify us. It grows us in Christ's likeness. It accomplishes God's work in our lives. We therefore can, and I would say we absolutely should, praise the Lord for His Word. Praise the Lord for His Word. Think of all the things that God has accomplished through the power, through the efficiency of His Word. It does what nothing else can do. So treasure it. And praise God for it. Because God is powerful, because God is sovereign, the psalmist urges us as his readers, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Fear the Lord. Fear Yahweh. Consider His incredible, unimaginable power and His sovereign rule, and stand in awe of who He is. He's accomplished all that He desires to accomplish 
with His Word. His Word has never once failed in accomplishing anything that He has wanted to do. It is steady, it is powerful, and it is unyielding. Praise Him for it. Praise Him for His Word, for your Bible. So the first reason that we should worship the Lord with hearts filled with thanksgiving is because He's revealed Himself and He's revealed His ways to us in His Word. He's revealed things that we could not ascertain from nature alone, but must be given to us in special revelation. That's the first reason we should praise and worship the Lord. The second reason we should worship Him is because He's sovereign and His will is perfect and unthwartable. Look at verses 10 to 12 with me. The psalmist says, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people from whom the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. God rules over all human institutions and all human affairs. Psalm 2, if you remember Psalm 2, it discussed the plot of the nations to overthrow God and His anointed one. Verses 1-4 to in Psalm 2 said this, it said, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The nations of the earth all stand against God. And they can go ahead and come together. They can go ahead and conspire and rebel and plan to overthrow God. And God's response is to laugh at them. Because it's such a ridiculous thought that even all the nations combined on earth could do anything against God. They are powerless against Him. The psalmist tells us here that He frustrates the plans of the people. You think you can act against God? You think you can just do whatever you want? No, this is His universe. He has the right to frustrate people's plans. In other words, He prevents them from doing various forms of evil. All we see is what God allows. Consider the fact that we don't know what God frustrates. That's another thing that we couldn't gather from natural revelation. We can only gather from His Word. That He frustrates the plans of the peoples. He prevents them from doing various forms of evil. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar as an example of that. He was a prideful man. He was a king who attempted to exalt himself over God. And what did God do? He restrained Nebuchadnezzar. God caused his mind to be like that of a beast of the fields for seven years. We read of how he was out looking over his kingdom one morning saying, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And then in verses 31 and 32 of Daniel chapter 4, we read this, While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever He wishes. God's saying, you think you're sovereign? No. And I'm going to prove it to you for the next seven years. So Nebuchadnezzar tells us exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, who was probably the author of Daniel chapter 4, he writes in verses 34 and 35, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing.
but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way that only God is sovereign. Only God is sovereign. And God's purposes and His plans always, always prevail. His will is irresistible. His will is unthwartable. Nations and people can't do anything against Him. They are nothing in comparison to Him. Nothing, nothing happens that He does not either specifically cause or allow to happen. There are no accidents in God's universe. He is sovereign over it all. And I realize that there are people out there who get very uncomfortable at the idea that God is sovereign over all things and that nothing happens that He has not either caused or allowed. But the truth is there's no fact in the world that offers greater comfort than knowing that God is sovereign. After all, it ensures us that every single one of God's purposes will be accomplished. It ensures us that God will be faithful to every single promise that He makes. Could God make a promise if He wasn't sovereign over everything to ensure the outcome? No. So God's sovereignty ensures us that His plans will prevail, that His promises will be found true, that He will be faithful to His promises. It ensures us that God means what He says. It assures us that His promises will be fulfilled and that nothing that happens to us, no trial that we experience is vain or without good purpose coming from a loving Father's hand. The psalmist is able to say, therefore, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. For this very reason, because God's plans and purposes always prevail because nothing can stand against them now what nation is he referring to here after all has there ever been a nation that consists entirely of people who believe in him and yield themselves to him uh, not in the literal sense not in the not in the the earthly sense even israel rejected god as their king uh, that's what the book of judges is all about uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and so everybody did what was right according to their own eyes. So, no nation has ever consisted entirely of redeemed people. So, what nation is this? What nation does this statement apply to? He, he tells us in the second part of verse 12. Look at the second part of verse 12. It says, "...the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance." That's a reference to the elect. That's a reference to the elect throughout the ages. Are God's elect a nation? Yes. Scripture does refer to the elect throughout the ages as a nation. Consider what Peter says. 1 Peter 2.9 he, he writes this. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession so that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Are you a citizen of this nation? Of the redeemed? It's not a physical nation. It never has been. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Only those who believe in Jesus are members of this kingdom. It's a kingdom that will never, ever, ever fail because our God never fails. His plans and His purposes, they always prevail. They never fail. Every other kingdom, including the United States, every other kingdom is a kingdom that is destined ultimately for destruction. As thankful as I am, and as we should be for the freedom that we have in our country, we can get into heaven without our country being free. But neither 
you nor I nor anyone else can get into heaven without the freedom that Christ offers. Freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the power of sin. I don't hesitate. I I will stand on this. I, I believe our country is the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Maybe ever, arguably. But only God's nation, only God's kingdom will last forever. Why would you live for any other kingdom? Why would you live for the things of this world? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? What a cursed thing it is to live for a nation that is doomed to destruction and failure. But what a blessed thing it is, the psalmist is telling us, to be received as a a citizen of God's kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you're a citizen of this nation, you already know that you have every reason in the world to praise and worship and be thankful unto God. So the first reason to worship God is because He's given us His Word. The second reason, which is revealed in His Word, uh, is to worship, uh, to worship God is that His purposes always prevail. He's sovereign over all things, everything. The third reason to worship and praise God is because of His omniscience, because His gaze is upon us. Let's continue looking at verses 13 to 19. The psalmist says, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. So the third reason to be thankful is that God is omniscient. He doesn't have literal physical eyes. When the Bible attributes human qualities like eyes or hands or whatever to God, it's a type of a figure of speech. We would call it anthropomorphic speech. You don't need to memorize that. It's a way of telling us something more profound with human terms. This uh, would be a way of telling us that God sees and knows everything. His gaze, so to speak, is constantly upon the earth. He sees it all. He knows it all. His omniscience, His all-knowingness is a significant part of His sovereignty. In every moment, in every circumstance, in every situation, God is keenly aware of what's going on. He's aware of every feeling. He's aware of every thought. And He's aware of every need. In fact, He knows your needs. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires and your feelings better than you do. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. God's gaze, God's omniscience, reveals that He is in control, that He is sovereign over all things. That is a great comfort to His children, And it's a truth that should strike great fear into the hearts of those who refuse to submit to His sovereign authority over them. Because He's even sovereign over what happens to them. So the psalmist tells us that kings aren't saved by a mighty army. That warriors aren't saved by their great strength. Well then what are they saved by? What is it that that preserves their life? They live for another day only because God has given them another day to live. For that reason, it is vain to trust in horses, the psalmist says. It's vain. It's a a false hope for victory is the, the words that he uses. It's vain. It's pointless. Why would you trust in horses to deliver you? No, the place to put your trust is not in horses. 
It's in God. And this is exactly why when David was a youth and he set out to do battle against Goliath, he was warned against the danger of going against Goliath, right? They're, they're like, you don't understand who this guy is. But David responded by saying, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now on the surface, if you were just watching this in a, in a movie, the paw of the temple, it might have looked like David survived the paw of the lion or the, the paw of the bear because he was young and he was strong and he was smart and he was fast and so he was able to outmaneuver these animals in some way. But what David wants us to understand when he says this is that no, it had nothing to do with any of those things. The only reason he survived is because God delivered him. So David approaches Goliath, and he says to Goliath across the battlefield, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. What did Goliath have his trust in? Worldly devices, sword, spear, javelin. David's trust, on the other hand, was in God. He understood, just as we should understand, that God is the one who is sovereign over life and death. Trusting in anything else, anything else, whether that be a sword or a chariot or a horse or some type of skill or your strength or a vaccination or a pill, trusting in whatever earthly device is a vain trust. It is a hopeless trust. It's a false hope. But what a great comfort it is to remind it that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness. There's that word again. Loving kindness. We keep seeing this word throughout the Psalms. The the Hebrew word is chesed. That word refers to the covenantal love that God has bestowed on His people on His chosen ones. It never fails. This has said, this loving kindness, it never fails. It never ends. God is aware of the needs of His people. God loves His people with this covenantal love, and therefore He provides for them at the right time. Praise the Lord for that. He's worthy of our supreme devotion and obedience and worship for that reason. Because there is no other God like our God who sees us, who loves us, who provides for us. And so, we put our hope in Him. We we repent of any false hope that we might have. Any worldly device we might be putting our trust in, we must repent of. And put our trust firmly in the Lord, relying entirely on Him. And we wait on the Lord, because that's what faith does. Our confidence is in Him, and so we wait. Now the psalm kind of changes direction here at the end of the psalm for the closing. Verses 20 to 22, let's look at what the psalmist writes there. He continues writing, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our, hope, for our heart rejoices in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let Your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in You. Now to say our, our soul waits for the Lord, it's a way of saying we're, we're reaffirming our commitment to Him and just trusting in Him to do what He alone can do. We wait because He alone is our help. He alone is our shield. He alone is our strength and our refuge. We wait for Him because He's the one who is sovereign over all things, including life and death, but everything in between as well. So the psalm ends with a prayer, a petition unto God. Let your loving kindness, there it is again, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. He will sustain us. He will provide for us as we put our hope in Him. Friends, praising and worshiping God 
is the proper response to an understanding of what He has done and what He continues to do. But remember that He does what He does because He is who He is. He does what He does because He is who He is. He extends loving kindness to His own because He is a God that's full of loving kindness unto His own. He's a God who is quick to show mercy to those who will believe in His Son, confess and repent, turning away from their sin. So look away from the trials that you experience that seem absolutely impossible to overcome. Look away from nations that are destined to fail and look to God and God alone. Look to His Son who took the sin and shame of everyone who would believe in Him and clothed us with His perfect righteousness, reconciling us to Himself. His mercies are new every morning. What an awesome God. Who is like Him in all the earth? What compares to Him in all the earth? Who or what is more worthy of our worship and our devotion than He is? The obvious answer is nobody is. And nothing is worthy of our worship, devotion, and obedience except God. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation then praise the Lord that you are here today to hear me urge you to do so now. That you may join us in praising and worshiping God as a citizen of His kingdom. And I have to warn you not to wait until the day when you'll be forced to bow before Him in His judgment over you. Instead, today, bow and worship with us in His grace and mercy over you which is received by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wait for Him. Trust in Him. And hope they rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And you will never be disappointed. You will always have a reason to worship. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the reminder that it is powerful and that it is efficient and that it is through hearing Your Word preached that faith is born, that faith is given and received. We thank You for Your Word and we worship You, O Lord, because You have given us Your Word, revealing Yourself and revealing things about Yourself that we never could have figured out on our own. We thank You also for sending a Helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us understand and live by Your Word. Most gracious God, we thank You for all that You have done and continue to do. And we thank You and worship You for who You are. There is none like You in all the earth. And there is none who is as worthy of our worship and our faith and our devotion as You are. We thank You for teaching us these great things. We thank You that Your Word accomplishes Your work in us. And we pray that You would continue to do so through Your Word, through the ministry of the Word, for the glory of Christ our Savior and Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.